Welcome to the Dallas Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Dallas Film Commission. Throughout this podcast series, we'll take you behind the scenes, peeling back the curtain on the magic of filmmaking. We'll explore the creative process, delve into the art of storytelling, and celebrate the talented individuals who bring these visions to life. Roll sound. Sound speed. Roll camera. Camera speed. And action. Hi, my name is Tony Armour. And I'm Andrew Vella. And this is the Dallas Film and Creative Industries Podcast. And this is episode number three. What a ways we've come already. <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? Three episodes. Three episodes. Wow. It was like yesterday we started our first episode. It seems like it. It really does, <laughs> it really does seem like it. <laughs> so today on the show, our guest is Steve Demler. Steve is uh, Steve has done a lot. Steve's been done a, done a variety of things. Uh, most recently now, he uh, has worked in finance and has a, a film fund set up doing a variety of things, financing uh, films and technology projects and uh, a variety of other stuff that I'm going to let you let him tell you all about. Um, going back to uh, you know being an award-winning writer, he's also a director, also worked on Saturday Night Live. So wow. I think that's a, that's a fun that's a fun story. So we'll, we'll let Steve tell yeah. us a little bit about who he is and what kind of just dive in from there. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, and for the glowing introduction. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, so, I mean, I don't know if you guys have covered this on a past podcast. I met Tony uh, when he was in his last role, right? He was the film commissioner in St. Pete uh, in Florida, which is not here, but is where I am. Um, and got on pretty well. And we've done a bunch of stuff together. But he, he's right. My, my background is I started... Uh, it's Saturday Night Live on the crew, primarily in the you know like production design, art department, props, um, that kind of thing. I think if you add it all up, uh, it's, it's about 125 episodes or something like this. Um, that's, started, a, that's a lot I mean, of episodes. Yeah, well, I, I started while I was still in high school catching cue cards, um, <clears throat> just having them thrown in my face by this guy, Wally, who works there. Um and then, you know, moved on to my, my father was, uh, you know, a stagehand there since the first episode. So moved on to his crew and then bounced into some other roles around there. Um, and then as one does from the props department and Saturday Night Live, I, I went to finance and work in hedge funds and, and investment banks. Um, you know, it's a very standardized jump from one to the other. But it's a, there's a Wanda, clear career path there that I can see catching cue cards in the face from <laughs> Wally to uh, managing yeah. hedge funds. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's catching PowerPoints in the face from clients um, or, you know, or redlined contracts being thrown in your face. But so it, it did that um, in a variety of things from helping buy a power plant, you know, to, to real estate, to hotels, uh, all of this kind of thing. Had a brief stopover in Las Vegas working on the corporate strategy team for MGM Resorts, doing some entertainment stuff there, among other things. Um, and then wound up deciding, I think it's time to put this stuff together. Um, and uh, a, a little bit of my writing had won some stuff. I won Raindance Film Festival screenwriting thing out in London, a couple other things, we screenplay, um, and got with some producers and got with Tony and pulled together a small, a small fund at the time and started cash flowing incentives and minimum guarantees and grants and things like this. Um, and it went well. Uh, so I managed to go back to this investor base who I've worked with on a variety of things and now I've raised the, you know, a little over 50 million bucks to deploy in film equity, film debt, and uh, we call it production equipment like LED volumes for virtual production. And, you know, that's where I'm at now. 
Well, let's uh, let's not uh, say your email address uh, over the air <laughs> because the fact that you just said fifty million dollar film fund uh, on a podcast—I did on purpose—people <laughs> will be hunting you down. Every yeah, independent, every independent filmmaker that hears this is going to be like, again. "What's that guy's yeah. name again?" All again, right, Steve. Yep. That guy, Steve. <laughs> yep. All right, I know where I'm going. My address is. No, <laughs> it's not under your bed. Like all the cash is sitting in the bed. Yeah. No, it's it's in the bed. Yeah. Have a real sewn into the mattress. Sewn into the mattress. Yeah, cash is in the mattress. Coins are just around to swim in. Gotcha. That's that's the <laughs> that's that's the perfect plan. So so you're right. That is a uh, a very eclectic path to get to to get to where you're at. Um, well, let's let's backtrack a little bit because I think people will find it you know, super interesting, 125 episodes of Saturday Night Live. And I think one of the the things that you just, you said it real fast and people may have missed it was your dad literally started on episode one of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Yep. Him uh, and his brothers, uh, two of them originally uh, from the, from the beginning, they were, uh, my grandfather was a stage channel radio city music hall right across the street. And then wow. NBC, um, he was a, a fun family stories. He he ran the hydraulic stage at the music hall uh, because he was a na- he had been in the navy and he was the only one with the top secret clearance or whatever level clearance, right? Maybe it's not top secret. He's the only one with clearance to see the hydraulics, which were the same as aircraft carriers at the time. Um, so you know, uh, he brought up his kids and kind of in the way. And by the time they were like nineteen, right? They were they were stagehands, and my dad at seventy after season forty seven of SNL retired finally. That's amazing. Oh, wow. That's Crazy. amazing. Yeah, it was a pretty incredible run. Really, really impressive. Yeah. No, I remember seeing when you had posted some pictures and stuff of that on social media. Forty-seven years on <laughs> yeah, Saturday Night Live. Wow. And talk wow. about some stories that he that he must have after yeah. after that long. Yeah. Yeah. I will decline the more salacious. <laughs> <Sure. laughs> of course. Of course. Ones. Um, we do. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. I tell it like it's true, but I guess I wasn't there. But I'm told that before the first episode. Uh, well, before, let's say everybody was more sober, um, my <laughs> uncle hit on some guy's girlfriend and that guy punched him in the face. So my uncle had to show up to, you know, SNL day one with a black eye. Turns out that person was Chevy Chase. And <laughs> it just cracked him in the face. Um, so he spent the day like avoiding eye contact with the main star of the show because <laughs> um, he'd hit him. So that sounds you know, like that like sounds that. like yeah. in, in that uh, early night. I don't think it's any secret in the early 80s what was happening on saturday night live as far as the uh, the drugs and the alcohol <laughs> i mean jim belushi and chevy yeah, chase I mean, and all those guys i mean that i don't yeah. they, i don't think those are any secrets we're trying to avoid here yeah yeah from the 70s i i figure like mid 70s through it's got to be the early 90s um there was a different place it's a different time uh but yeah for sure you know, but they all came through it right like the, the people who got an early stayed you know and made, yeah. made a full career out of it well, and so so 125 episodes. So that's a lot of episodes, mm. you know. And I, I guess that's that's really a great introduction into the industry, right? So it's it's television, it's live television, it's fast moving, but at the same time, it's super creative. You know, mm-hmm. there's you know, it's writing, it's directing, it's acting, it's you know, putting these skits together, it's props, producing, yeah. it's props, it's 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 making a film, making a TV show, like all rolled into one every single week. Mm-hmm. basically yeah. can you just talk a little bit about you know what you learned from that experience for from 125 episodes because yeah. you're there working in different departments sure. but you're but you're sort sure, of sure. You're, you're witnessing and you're learning everything all at once yeah the biggest thing and i i mean it applies to so many different fields right is like uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough right um 
and that that's true because th- those guys are rewriting the show from you know tuesday when they start through air you know like the sketches that are on later or update jokes are being rewritten but they're doing it based on feedback and then eventually they just go because it's time to go right um and a lot of the stuff with the set is you know like the way i watched them build sets was like okay this isn't exact this doesn't look exactly like the oval office but they're going to get the point because we got a flag here we got a flag here and a big old desk phone that looks like the desk phone that was on tv last night we're not going to sweat the small details right so it was kind of learning about like finding that optimal point between you know like the ideal and just trash right and meeting in the middle and saying like this is this will get the job done so this is what we're going to do um and not over focusing on the the pieces of production that aren't really driving the value right because snl knows what its value is it's the punchline to each sketch right it's the punchline so if it's not serving the punchline let it go or or don't sweat it at least um so, I mean, that was a big thing. And then the other thing was that <laughs> 30 seconds is a long time because uh, <laughs> you're working and you hear this countdown start, you know, like 30 seconds back from commercial. And when I first started, like my heart rate would just spike and I'd freak out, like start looking around like an insane person. Like, where am I supposed to be? Am I in the wrong spot? But over time, you learn like, oh, man, like you stay calm, you think through it and you have enough time to do your, you know, do your job. Um except on the few occasions where we didn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? And and we all had to hold a wall up so it doesn't fall over because we didn't clamp it right or something like that. But um, yeah, I don't know. And and then the other thing was controlled chaos. Like that, that team is really good about like, everybody is a pro at what they do and they're running around bumping into each other, saying things, and then they're going off and doing their own thing. And like the product just kind of congeals and you know, like builds a you know, like bubbles up and somehow appears on top of what looks like just insane energy, um, insane kinetic energy the whole week. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I imagine that's like, like what an experience, you know, doing that for, for so mm-hmm. many episodes. So really you think about 125 episodes, it sounds like a lot. And then you realize, Oh, that's like just a little over two years. <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know it, feel, you, it feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, you know, just well, they do, they do about 20, 22 a year typically. Yeah. Um, and um, from high school through, you know, undergrad and some grad school, I was doing most of them. So that's where I knocked out most of it. Um, and then post grad school, uh, I would still fly up uh, like a Friday night and just show up Saturday morning and get to work on the props crew um, and knock out an episode. And in those cases, I, I did very little except like dress the set when I needed to dress it, you know, hand somebody, I don't know, like uh, an ice cream cone, you know, uh, when I needed to hand it to them on set or whatever it was, um, throw something at Will Forte, you know, something like this. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I did that for a couple of reasons. One, it's fun to work the show. Obviously, it's a fun show. And two, I don't really have any other way to see my family because <laughs> they all work there if I didn't go and work the show. That's cool. That's uh, yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's great. And so, you know, your whole family works there, and they'd worked there for for so long. What um, what was it then that made you be like, you know, I don't I don't need to do this until I'm seventy, like that. Sure. You know, I'm yeah. I, I think I'm gonna go uh, you know, go into the the easygoing world of, of finance. <laughs> yeah, the low stakes world of finance. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw some of the older, even more than my parents. And like my dad and my uncles, um, I saw some of the older guard, uh, like lighting designers, like Phil Himes and some of these other guys, Eugene Lee, who just passed away, which is really sad, like working until very late. And I, 
there's another family there who's who has like a, maybe eight or ten family members working the show, and they joke like they're gonna find their dad dead in the stairwell because he's gonna he's gonna be working until then. And maybe a little bit is because it's like a great job and everybody's it's really a, a great workplace. But the other part is they have to. New York's really expensive. You know what I mean? And most people are not hired by a show that lasts 47 years, right? These shows close, people are out of work, and it's expensive to live. So I, I just thought, like, I love this and I love writing, you know, uh, but that can be a hobby. I would. I also really love shelter and food consistently. <laughs> um, and I, I found I had an aptitude, right, for for numbers and math. And I found that SNL gave me a real calmness in the face of, like, volatility, um, which is absolutely transferred over into finance in a in a pretty seamless way yeah so so you go through that and then you so you kind of come back full circle and you know you start start in entertainment move into finance build up your relationships and your contacts and everything there and then make the circle back to uh back to entertainment but in a completely different and different facet mm-hmm. different position out talk, talk a little bit about what that <clears throat> decision making process was like and if your wife um, was ready to divorce you when you said that you were going to uh, stop uh, stop your finance job and instead uh, you know get into the, get into sure. the world of film and entertainment. Sure, sure. Well, compromise, right? She's from Florida. We moved to Florida, um, <laughs> you know, and based here. So there's there's always a give and take. But uh, the way you know the way SNL kind of informed and helped like give me some calmness and volatility that's helped finance. Uh, finance kind of gave me the mindset of like there's a lot of good trades that you can pass on and still find the right one. Right. So it's about like finding the a value and then finding the value that's right for you. So when I was thinking, how do I come back into entertainment and how do I put the things together? Basically I looked for the, the need, right. Where like, where, where was there a need and where do I know something that might provide a little edge and the, this like cash flow and incentives or whatnot, is easier for me because I understand what they're underwritten by, right? Like I understand what the creative production is as kind of, and what the risks are, you know, to delivering and fulfilling the terms of say an incentive or a grant or whatever it is. And I also can translate that into finance. Whereas a lot of people, some of these are so small, right? You're not talking about studios. We're talking about independent financiers. Like you got a guy who's really good at real estate, you know, trying to understand the risks to a $500,000 incentive receiving delivery. And he's just not familiar. So he misvalues the risks. He's uncomfortable with it. It's a stretch for him. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't really know where he is. But for me, the background and understanding production, production risk, and also terms of finance made it a good starting point, right? And what financier doesn't want collateral, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and be able to to start something new in a kind of a, a slightly risk averse way. Yeah. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast, because we don't know who's listening to this podcast yet, since it's only episode three, Yeah, you know, are probably independent filmmakers or independent uh, creatives in, you know, somewhere, digital media, commercial, that kind of stuff. And they, they want to get stuff made. And I think so many people really don't know how, mm-hmm. you know, well, how do I, how do I take those steps to actually, you know, find money for my project? It's a, it's a question that, 
as a as a you know film commissioner I've gotten for <laughs> many many years. People calling up. They they haven't started yet in Dallas. I know those calls will be coming soon. Yeah. You know, hey, I've got this great <laughs> great idea for a film, or uh, yeah. I've got this great screen, screenplay. Can you help me get it made? And you know, that's not really what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't necessarily say. Hey, go talk to Steve. Yeah, <laughs> he'll give you money. <laughs> I don't do that either because because that's a lot of it is you know like well, sure. who, well who can sure. you put, who can you put me put me in touch with? And I was like, it's not quite that doesn't quite work that way. And so you know we'll yeah. do workshops and educational things, sort of explain, sure. explaining finance and distribution mm-hmm. and how it works and you know why you can you know put things together in a different way and why you should shoot them in Dallas, in Dallas. Uh, after you get the money for uh, for your projects. I mean, where else would you wanna where do you wanna shoot? Great it? weather, film friendly. <laughs> Great warehouses, all the, all the all the good all the good things, all the good things. So you know, yeah. part of it is so. Let's let's say there's a scenario where a filmmaker does come to you and there's mm-hmm. and they say, "Hey, I've got this project. It's a great project. The script is awesome." Yeah. Everybody else thinks the script is awesome as well. Not just my grandma and my mom. You know, like real people think sure. this is, think this is a good script. You know, what sort of evaluation process do you go through? And in talking to them mm-hmm. to decide, is this something I want to participate with financially or not? Yeah, I'd love to hear what, what yeah. you're looking for. Sure. It, so it depends on the bucket, right? Like if I'm, if I'm being approached to cash flow and incentive, uh, I, when I read the script, I'm not necessarily reading it uh, to think, is this like an incredible piece of art, right, that I really believe in? What I'm reading it for in that case is, is it producible with the proposed budget? And can we deliver the terms of the incentive that, you know, are ultimately protecting my investors and protecting me, right? And, w- and when you say so when you re- say cash flow incentive, I just want to explain, you know, for maybe those in the sure. audience, you know, if you're getting an incentive from, let's say, a state or from a region or something like that, and the incentive is $500,000, well, those incentives don't pay to the film or the project right off the bat. They come later after the project is done shooting. So what you're going to do is you're going to give them the money specifically for that incentive in advance, and then you get to keep the incentive, basically. Yeah. Yeah, you give a, you decide on a rate, you know, like 10% of 500 grand is 50 grand, right? So I'll give them 450 today to shoot it so they can actually shoot it. Uh, and then I get, the incentive will come to me at the 500, and that's how I get my return. When we, when we do that. but So if that's what I'm being asked for, I'm reading pragmatically, right? Like, is this achievable that the budget scoped out? You know, it's all about production risk there. Um, if I'm being asked to also put in equity or help cast it or, you know, do, do proper producing, like, you know, like more involved producing, then I, I have to enjoy the script, right? Like it, the, the story has to move me or, or like entertain me or, or really kind of move the needle. Um, because it takes so much more time, right? And there's so much more risk that I at least have to enjoy the risk I'm taking, you know, let alone underwrite it financially. Um, so I'm, it, it depends on which one. Uh, I've, I do equity. It's a lot smaller than the amount of, you know, the incentives and call it film debt, you know, cash flow and minimum guarantees and things like this that we'll do. Um, but I definitely do both and want to do both. Um, and it, for me, in the independent space, it really comes down to, like the writer director and lead producer are they are they here to make a movie that can be made or are they dead set on making this thing they have in their head you know like real life be damned um because i've i talk to both all the time and i one of the i won't say which one but one of those groups tends to be you know (laughs) the more common (laughs) than the other Um, yeah i I think uh you know creative people a lot of times don't necessarily also have a business mind and so they're yeah. like, this is my vision. This is what the film 
must be no matter what without taking into yeah. consideration the fact that they're not spending their own money on it. <laughs> sure. And there's there's the I- idealizing like stories of like Robert Rodriguez shooting something for seven grand and like or somebody with a large budget um produces this incredible work of art because they're they're uncompromising and they're they're you know they they don't give up on their vision and this and that. But react like that's not true. It got made. They compromised a ton. You know what I mean? Like that that is what happened. They made deals and they compromised maybe they held fast to like five or six things they cast who they want to cast but to do so they had to give up a b c and d right and so there's kind of a naivety around it uh that part of the process i think that doesn't help uh emerging filmmakers sometimes yeah it's interesting sort of the, the storylines that the media tells or you yeah. know the what's what's put what's put out there is like they yeah they didn't bend on their vision and they got ex- <laughs> they got exactly right. the film yeah. they wanted and it won an oscar and like well right You're like <laughs> they did they definitely made deals all of them <laughs> <laughs> well uh so you you have some um i don't know if uh if you're <clears throat> if you're officially announcing this yet or not but you've made some deals with some industry companies that uh moving forward i don't know if you're allowed to talk about that if you're not well i'll move on to something else but so one i can't the one you're probably talking about is back and forth on paperwork but okay we're it's advanced right so you know lord willing we'll get there but um and then you know the other the other thing we're doing speaking of equity um right is um partnering with a firm in new zealand uh, New Zealand has a really wonderful, like, supportive, go- you know, government regime for film. Um, to shoot a, a film out there in April called Bookworm, starring Elijah Wood, directed by Ann Timpson. You know, he's a Sundance director. He did Come to Daddy. Um, and that's just the case of, like, really shrewd, intelligent producers putting together the right financial package to where some of the return from debt can help offset equity risk. And and it they built, you know, a business package, and they made the deals where they had to and stuck with what they had to stick with. And, you know, now we're going. Um, nice. And that's so, what, I and mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good example. Yeah. And that's shooting in New Zealand. Correct. Elijah, yeah. Elijah, Elijah, was Elijah Wood. Love being back, 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 New back to New Zealand. He's like, haven't I spent yeah. enough time in this yeah. country? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's going to love being there. Yeah. He's like a local hero without having to have <laughs> be from there. Yeah. 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 I guess if you would think about it, like if when Elijah Wood shows up in New Zealand, like it, that's like the pope, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the pope of New Zealand has just has just showed up. Yeah, relative you know? carpet. The, he gets to go down the street, the street <laughs> yeah. in that plastic bubble of a car, of a convertible, and just wave to people. That's that's what I imagine when yeah. what happens. Yeah, you can tell me if that's true or not, or I mean, lie to me. And that's a hundred percent true. I'm just going to go on record and say there's no way that's not true. You heard it here first at the Dallas Film and Creative Initiative. Yeah, heard, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. We're going to perpetuate that. <laughs> For the twelve, the twelve people that ended up listening to this podcast, including Elijah Wood, <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, he's a big fan of the Dallas uh, Film and Creative Industries podcast. So obviously, you've got uh, the Elijah Wood Elijah Wood film. You have uh, you have paperwork going back and forth, yeah. and all the attorneys yep. attorneys doing doing that stuff. And yep. this uh, your fifty million dollar fund is is really new. So this is something that, yeah. you know, within this year, you know, it's 2023 right now, um, has, has just gotten started. So by the end of this year, what do you envision 
happening mm-hmm. with uh, with what you've got, you know, in the next 11 months or so, you know, how, how much do you see? Sure. Because I mean, obviously this is a long-term play. This isn't, you're not spending plan on spending all 50 in 2023. Uh, I wouldn't Correct. think, I wouldn't think so unless you, you were aiming to be, you know, like a lottery winner or something. <laughs> and it's like, it came in, it's going out as fast as it came in, you know? March 10th. I'm spending it by March 10th. <laughs> um, you heard it here. Uh, no, it, it's, I'm, I'm trying to build something sustainable, right? So if you look at the buckets, um, equity debt and like LED volumes, right? For production, virtual production, um, equity will be the smallest bucket. Debt will be medium. The virtual production will be larger. And that's in, that's a function of the steadiness of each of them, right? And how I can build them all. So it's about building a whole portfolio of all of them that feed into each other and allow a little more risk taking, which is the equity, right? And so it really depends on how long it takes to source and build the safe buckets up to lift the the riskier bucket up, um, which I, you know, I, I expect to take throughout the course of the year to spend. I would love to get like 15 to 25 out this year um, of it, because the reality is, um, and anybody in, in my position would, I think would do this also, as soon as like 10 to 15 is out there, I'm, I'm hitting the road to raise more or attempt to raise more. Right. And, and at some point, Hopefully, this is kind of self-perpetuating, and the the need for more expensive capital, you know, goes from the outside. External capital goes away. Um, but the way we're going to do it, right, is uh, sign some deals to build a pipeline of films and incentives and minimum guarantees and small equity shots uh, through deals with you know a couple of agencies, hopefully. Um, but I'm also looking to do maybe a couple of private equity deals and take stakes in production companies that are led by industry professionals who've been doing it for a while, right? And have an established reputation of we get films made on time, on budget, um, you know, and, and maybe take a, a two or three stakes there and let the professionals run that business and then support them however I can from my side while I build up, the, you know, the other buckets. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, that's, I mean, obviously you can tell that you, you are the business guy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important, again, this is important for any, you know, new filmmaker, even if you're not a new filmmaker and you're just a filmmaker trying to get your stuff made to, you have to understand the business side of the industry to get, you know, things made. There's that old saying that everybody says over and over again, it's not, it's, it's, it's called show business, not show entertainment or show, you know, whatever <laughs> you, you want to mm-hmm. you know, throw in there. It's, you know, it's, it is definitely, a uh, a business first and first and foremost um you know talking about uh, and and I've already introduced Steve to uh to a player in the industry that's in mm-hmm. Dallas and so we can talk offline about that Steve a little bit and see how sure. how those conversations mm-hmm. went so already working to bring some of those projects and some of that you know 50 million to Dallas yeah. Dallas if possible mm-hmm. but you know we Absolutely. Andrew and I were talking a little bit on I think our first episode about mm-hmm. LED volumes and yeah. about where we yep. see that technology going. So, you know, I think you are of the same opinion that that I am that this is it's not mm-hmm. just the future, it's the now and you yeah. know to really get yeah. uh, get embedded it with that now is is where where technology is going. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what you see in that technology and in the future of the industry utilizing that. Sure, a good example. So, a good benefit, like I'm sure you guys covered, like how impressive the technology is, and everybody can Google and see the Mandalorian or 1899, and like this incredible, you know, like the incredible visuals you can put together with these things is amazing. And using Unreal Engine, which is open source, which is incredible, blah blah blah. Um, 
for smaller productions, which most of the time independent, you know, creatives have to be, um, think, think about like reducing Teamster fees and trucks and gas and loading from shipping crew from place to place and the time value you lose and shipping, you know, company moves and this and that, because you can shoot 80% in a location, right? And you, you get the right props, you get the right PD on, on board and, you know, bam, <laughs> you say that money can go to the wall. It's a lot more controlled. Um, and so it provides a lot of value on budget line items you wouldn't typically associate with LED volumes, right? Like that's a, it saves you on stuff you don't really want to be dealing with anyway, right? You want to, you want to be in the studio um, and not moving everybody around and having an extra 30 minutes to tinker with the lights, you know, in the visuals that you wouldn't, if you were driving down the street to, you know, another empty lot or, you know, an abandoned building that you're going to shoot in um, and try to keep your crew from getting tetanus when they step on something. Um, <laughs> so that's one thing. Um, but the other is something I'm doing is like, as, as we get these out, there is, trying to understand the position of these up and coming production companies, like what that want these walls to like advance themselves into the future and stop shooting on green screen that you can buy for felt at Michael's, <laughs> like, you know, department store or whatever. Um, and actually like take the next step to grow their business. And it's, it's kind of building creative financial packages that allow them to actually have the wall, use the wall, and build their business without having to kind of mortgage all of their future cash flow just to stay afloat and pay for the thing. Um, it's still early days, so this stuff's expensive, right? And that's why you only hear about big studios using it. But there's a path, like that's what I've spent so much time on, right? Is there's a path to achieving that, you know, like getting the exact same quality wall at a reasonable price if you have the right partner, right? Um, who, who's kind of building for both to succeed than for you know, to make a sale or, or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's what you mean by the future is now, right? Like, mm. yes, it's expensive and futuristic, but it it's happening. It's already happening. And there is a way to do it. You just have to partner with the right partners. Right. And, and be understand like what constraints there are. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what I find to be really interesting is sort of the, the model that you set up is that this is something that can enable smaller companies or medium-sized companies to get this same technology and make it worth make it worthwhile. Because the beauty of these are is there's not one size. They're not one size fits all. They can, yeah. you know, you've got a you've got a tiny little podcast studio like we're sitting in here, and you want an LED wall in here. Okay, we can we can find a way to make that uh, make that work. You know, it's very customizable by. By what, yeah. by what you're looking for. So anybody in Dallas, do you need one, Tony? Yeah, anybody. I'll, I'll put oh. one in. I'll put one in that studio. <laughs> All those listening to you just ask. Yeah, podcast. that's right. And anybody yeah. in Dallas or anybody that's listening, you need an LED wall. <laughs> Steve's the man to talk to. Um, Come visit me at my home at one. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, so um, there is a there is a website. Yes, that you uh, either have or will be going live soon for the for the LED technology. And I believe that yeah. is story-walls.com, correct? I don't think it's up. That's I don't correct. Th- I don't think it'll it's... be up uh, next Wednesday. It'll be up. Um, well, so, and I guess, I guess, know, give, I, guess we, a... I guess we should say oh. that next Wednesday is. Will this be out in was, the past? Three weeks in no, the past? No, we're living in the past here. <laughs> so the past. Got, we're, it. We're, Got we're, it. We want these episodes to be evergreen. So, um, so we, we're going oh, to okay. try and stay away from news and dates. Basically, the 15th. but by the 15th of February, 2023, mm. story-walls.com 
uh, will be live to be able to take a look at for um, talking with Steve and seeing if you want an LED wall wherever you're at, as far as as far as I yeah. know, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean that that's what you can do with it's incredible, right? And I, I don't want to shill too much, uh, you know, but it's just. It's amazing. It is just kind of incredible the leap, and now that it's being democratized and becoming available is just amazing. Um, especially for me, right? Because I've said this to you before, Tony. Is like my vision for this is ninety percent of the time I'm doing my business thing, right, and, and leaning into that and growing it. And then ten percent of the time I'm writing, and and, and like I grew up writing and w- wanted to pursue that. Um, had published some stuff some places, right, and won a few screenwriting fellowships. So like I'm not removed from the creative side like i want the business success to feed that um so i i feel like i'm through learning about the walls i'm learning about like how to write or craft a production that can actually be shot in a contained like smart way for the right amount of money you know and in terms of the business side of things but not without you know not giving up on looking at is a ultimately is like a creative tool yeah and it's interesting and i think you know, it's, I think a lot of the conversations that we're going to have over the years on this podcast, is, notice how I said years. Wow. So, <laughs> so, so three to years. I know, Let's right? This yeah. is going. I asked, yeah. uh, I asked Andrew when we first got started oh, how many, what his goal was, and he said a thousand episodes. A thousand episodes. So that's a, that's a, All right. that's a lofty, that's a lofty goal. We'll, we'll knock that out in a couple of years, a thousand, yeah. thousand, <laughs> thousand episodes. I might, I might be retired by the time we get to a, a, thou, a thousand episodes. But I, I kind of, the analogy is, you know, somebody can be a great doctor and and not know how to run a business and so they have a terrible practice you know you hear about that a lot where yeah. a doctor doesn't know how to run a business and that's what a doctor's office is is a business even though they might be a great doctor and so it's kind of the same thing in the in the film industry you know you need to be creative and know how to make great creative content but you better you better know the business side of it mm-hmm. at the same time yeah and then the other part is and this goes for everybody for me for everybody else is you got to know what you don't know and then partner or hire or team up with the people who do, you know what I mean? Like I don't line produce cause I'd be bad at it. And there are people who have devoted their careers to it and are good at it. So why, you know, you know what I mean? Why would I pretend I could DP a feature <laughs> when I can't, you know what I mean? And if I start today, maybe I'm okay in five years, but that kid who's been playing with his camera since he was eight is for sure better. And that's who I should work with. So I think for the doctor thing, right? Like, yes, you're incredibly smart. You're a doctor. Um, you might have some aptitude for picking out good projects and this and that, but you should probably get the right team around you that can fill in the gaps and accept that you will have gaps because you do. Yeah. I, I think that's, uh, that's, that's important. We, none of us should be so arrogant that to think that we could do it all, <laughs> all, all ourselves. It's a collaborative, it's a collaborative industry. And, you know, everyone has to find a way to uh, find a way to work together, basically. Steve, I do have a question for you. Going back to LED walls, since it's so new and exciting, um, what markets are you seeing do LED walls good right now or great? Are there any besides Dallas? No, no, um, Dallas. Dallas, of course. Maybe this is a backfire question, but I'm just curious. No, no, it's a fair question. Um, I... It's broad. I mean, the interest is broad. It doesn't mean they're they're flying off the shelves to you know in every state, right? Like mm-hmm. it's sort of as you would expect. Um, although the interest is wherever there is production companies that are 
that think they might be able to take that step, there's interest. The people doing things are where the environment is hospitable to do things, right? And where there's some way to plug in, right? So, Like Dallas. Um, like Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, Louisiana, Georgia, you know, places like that. Um, an impressive thing is uh, Florida is not a hospitable place for film, right? However, uh, not to pat him on the back because I, I don't want to overdo it here, but uh, Tony, before he came to, to Dallas, had created a situation in St. Pete where despite the circumstances, there's a thriving community there. So I, you know, I was able to do, do some good work with some really kind of brilliant studios there um, as well. But I think this is widespread, right? So as soon as the, the tech is, people understand that they actually can get it and that it is the same, you know, and they're not worried about getting like, you know, <laughs> like the off brand version that where like the logo is Gucci, but the G's are the wrong way. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, we'll, we'll start to see them move a little more, you know, kind of across the board, but cause the, it applies to, like Tony said, these things are modular. You can get the size you need, the shape you need. Um, if all you want to do is shoot commercials, then get one appropriate for shooting commercials, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if you, there's a, there's a place here where the first one I got was to test out my supply chain and, you know, an operational flow and kind of test the quality of the product. It's used mm-hmm. as like a backdrop for comedy shows that adds a little bit of color and flavor, throws some logos up, maybe some ads, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit of this or that. Like, and, and it's, you know, it's pretty cheap. It's not, it's not very hard to pay off if, from that perspective um, when they're selling out comedy shows because the, the production design and environment and, and the comedians are, you know, so top notch. Yeah. And so um, since it's so new, I, I think people are still learning how to operate them. So do you have any insight into when it goes into a market, where are these, the LED engineers coming from? Sure. Like, for, uh, like I if, mean, you know, when they start popping up, because we do have some in Dallas. And when you bring one to Dallas, um, you know, how can people start working on them or learning to work them? Yeah. So the nice thing about an open, like a wall powered primarily by open source software, like the Unreal Engine is the community for training is pretty vibrant. Um, so it's up to you. It's, it depends on the person. Cause I don't want to say you don't, ha- you do not have to go to school to learn how to do this. Right. Mm-hmm. It depends on you. Like some people thrive in a school structure. Some people don't, but there's infinite resources on how to code and you know and, and build within the unreal engine all over the internet i mean all over the place really high quality stuff um from youtube on down to some of the other you know like udemy and some of the like kind of the educational websites um or you know or the top schools or, or having departments like that whether it's ringling here in you know florida or usc or nyu right like everybody is training for that and it's a it's a mix of artistic and computer science, and it, it's a really interesting field. Um, but the materials are there outside of that kind of ivory tower, super expensive school because of the open source nature of everything. Yeah, so it's accessible. I, you just have to put in the time. I think that's the really cool thing about it is uh, a lot of yeah. schools are building these programs. So if you if you have a, a film or animation school at any you know anywhere in the country, they're adding these, you know, these LED volume programs where they're not saying, okay, learn how to work on an LED volume. They're teaching video game design on Unreal Engine. And so you're doing design with that or animation. And so learning that, learning that you're actually learning 
how to work within the volumes. Mm-hmm. Now to you know have that hands-on work, you will need to actually go to somewhere that has a volume and and and, and do it. But you know, like you said, Unreal Engine, you could be a high school kid, you know, sitting in your bedroom yeah. and learn Unreal mm-hmm. Engine and do it because it's free. They literally, and that's I think that's so, sure. so brilliant of what they what Unreal did with that is they just make it free. So that you yeah. can, so that you can have that because they know that you know the barrier to entry could be you know other software. If you want to learn you know you know fill in the blank 3D animation software, you have to buy the software right or pay that subscription that can be really yep. really expensive. Mm-hmm. Or it's like oh hey if we give this away for free, anybody can learn it and now you become the industry standard mm-hmm. because everybody's using it. Sort of the you know think of the uh, VH versus VHS versus Betamax. Uh, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Make it make it very you know usable for everyone, and that'll be the one that uh, that becomes a dominant uh, dominant software. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean that's exactly right. Well, speaking of, I'm gonna do a big callback to the beginning of our episode. Um, nice. We were talking about Chevy Chase. He is coming okay. to the Dallas Fan Expo convention. So oh, if you're looking to come to Dallas while you're scouting your next film in July, sure. And you're interested in Chevy I Chase. Get- and you, and you so can, can go up to him and say, hey, hey. You, you hit my uncle. Is that <laughs> true? <laughs> Shut up. Do you remember <laughs> punching my uncle? And then he punches you. And yeah. And then, it's just a beautiful family yeah, tradition. It's a family yeah. tradition. Full circle. <laughs> yeah. Everything comes full circle. You can go home. Yeah, of course. Retire. Like, I, I too was punched. I did it. <laughs> there you go. I, I did it. Awesome. Yeah. I'm not a tough man, so he probably still could take it at whatever age he is now. <laughs> I, I, assume he, I assume he'd win. Yeah. I'm not trying to do that. Awesome. Well, Steve, uh, before we wrap up here, anything uh, anything else you got coming up next? I think the the next up basically was the Elijah Wood project, and I know you've got a lot of other mm-hmm. things in the hopper that you're working on. So, um, you know, down the road, as you get more things, we'll have you back on to talk about talk about the other things that you're working on. But any anything else that you're working on that you wanna you wanna share before we wrap up? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the LED thing's big. That's going to be a big focus because I think. I've, I think I've found a way to bring it to places, you know, to companies that prior to now wouldn't have been able to have it. Um, so that'll take a lot of my focus. Um, I'm going to, I guess in May, I'll be in France, right, for the Cannes Film Festival to kind of build my pipeline, right? And that's, I think, part of what emerging filmmakers need to think about, too, is like, you have to have your scripts or whatever, right? And you have to have them ready and they have to be good. Um, but you have to also a lot a reasonable amount of time to build your network. Um, and it's not so easy as meeting somebody over drinks and immediately throwing a script in their face saying, Hey, why don't you make this? It's, it's doing something for someone else, right. Or letting them get to know you as a person. So the, the relationship is a little more sturdy, right. Before you try to build something on top of it. Um, so I'll be, so I'll be out there for that kind of for the led thing and also building the film debt and film equity pipeline. Um, and then I have, uh, it's not finalized, so I can't talk about it. But I am taking a, a, a small equity position in a in a film from a, an upcoming, emerging, just super talented uh, female filmmaker um, that I'll, I would love to come back and talk about because um, we're nearing done. But I don't want to jump the gun and yeah, and, you know, talk about That's it exciting. before then. When you're ready, we'll talk about yeah. talk mm-hmm. about it when you're ready. Well, uh, Steve Demler, thank you for being on the Dallas Film and Creative Industries podcast. Uh, my name is Tony Armour. My name is Zandra Vella. Thank you for listening. and Thank you very much. Yeah. Hope you turn in, tune in for the next episode. And that wraps up another episode of the Dallas Film Commission podcast. We hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes journey. We'd like to express our gratitude to our incredible guests who shared their valuable insights and stories with us and all of you. Whether you're a budding filmmaker, an old pro, or a movie enthusiast, 
Dallas is a place where we make things happen. Be sure to visit the Dallas Film Commission's website for more information, resources, and opportunities to get involved in this thriving industry. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes filled with great guests, inspiring stories, and industry secrets. And cut. Cut.